I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. As a foundation, we focus on solutions for the city of Boston where education, wellness, and community overlap. We have become known for some work that we have been doing with Boston Public Schools Food Nutrition Services Department as they move away from prepackaged, manufactured meals to 100% whole, real, delicious meals cooked on site at all 125 schools across the city. Food is foundational in both healthcare and education. Good food heals and fortifies. We have seen changes in the food program impact our city students' readiness to learn. Principals, teachers, parents, and the students themselves all comment on how important healthy food is to a successful day. We've learned quite a bit about food over the past several years, and we've met many who have built their careers in understanding it, treating patients with it, and helping solve problems that result because of it, from the obesity crisis to the issues of food access to malnutrition. One of these food gurus is Jerry Mand. Jerry brings a wealth of experience in public health, nutrition, and public policy to his work. He has worked for three U.S. presidents, led the design of the Nutrition Facts label, drafted the laws governing the nation's organ donor system, and shaped the country's food safety, tobacco, and cancer control policies. Until the most recent change in administrations, he helped lead the U.S. Department of Agriculture's feeding programs and supported First Lady Michelle Obama's fight against childhood obesity. Now, he is a professor at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, where he leads an initiative on advocacy, food policy change, and public health impact. Jerry, welcome to our humble little podcast room. It's great to have you here. Jill, thank you so much. It's an honor and pleasure to join you today. Well, so let's, this is great. I feel like we have to start at the beginning. Um, you've worked for three U.S. presidents. Which ones did you work for? Um, I worked for George Herbert Walker Bush, the first uh, Bush, mm-hmm. uh, then Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and then uh, um, Barack Obama. Okay. And we could probably spend an entire podcast talking about what you did for each of them, but particularly um, you rewrote the Nutrition Facts label. So why did it need to be rewritten? Well, that was something I did back in, in the first position I had with uh, uh, the Bush administration, okay. and I had joined them right out of uh, Congress. And uh, the story begins part there and part before. Um, we'd had nutrition labeling for many years, um, but the labels became more and more difficult to understand. Hmm. Um, and they weren't on every product. Uh, companies had to put a label on if they made a claim or if they fortified their food, but otherwise they didn't. And were, were Americans complaining or who, who was confused? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think Americans were complaining. Mm-hmm. It, was harder to, it was hard to understand what was in their food. People were interested. They couldn't find that from the label. Yeah. Um, but there was also a, a move toward um, putting more types of claims on food. Okay. And, oh, interesting. And so there was information, but a really transformative point came when, um, and, and this actually came out of uh, government research about cancer and diet, mm-hmm. and companies found that they wanted to make those types of claims on their uh, products. Mm. And so companies started um, probably, um, I mean, there's always been a history of people making uh, claims, but in a really renewed and, and forceful way, uh, started saying that uh, these latest science should be reflected on the package that might help sell their food. So uh, the example was all brand cereal um, wanted to put on a statement from the Cancer Institute that this might reduce your risk of uh, cancer. Of cancer, okay. And that kind of opened up the flood doors for a whole range of claims that weren't really uh, supported. 
but also a sense that maybe it would, would be helpful to have evidence-based or scientifically valid claims. There was a, there's a whole debate about that. Right. And so in the end, um, the FDA began uh, work on it, and then Congress uh, passed a, a law, uh, the Nutrition Labeling Education Act. Mm. And I joined uh, FDA right about the time that law was uh, passed. I mm -hmm. worked on it some when I was in the Congress, then joined FDA for its implementation. And it was that law uh, that required that the labels be updated. So, and what was the major um, achievement in the new labels? We know it's interesting that uh, there were th maybe three things I'll mention. One mm -hmm. was that um, there was a standardized set of information that would need to appear in virtually all food packages. Okay, and that's like, how many sugars and how many carbohydrates and those sorts of things. Right, and so in that time, some of the key new in entries were on saturated fat, yep. and fiber, and, and, and having a, a set list. There'd been information. As I said, it wasn't. It was mandatory if you made certain claims or added things to your product, but mm. to sort of create a standardized a set of information that needed to be on uh, the label. Okay. But probably the most significant thing was also a, a, a new, and, and this is something that Congress could uniquely do, was a new purpose for the label. Mm -hmm. um, it was no longer going to be just to provide people information, but it was actually meant to change people's health. Okay. So how, how did, tell me about how that was expected to happen. Well, that's a great point. Um, Congress gave a, a little bit of direction. They said that the information on the label needed to be put in the context of a daily diet. Okay. That somehow okay. you had to uh, take from this label not just information but was in there, but somehow put that into the context of the diet. Okay. And they also said, though, that they were expecting that the impact of this label would be to save healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. And so somehow mm. um, we needed to save healthcare costs, which means people's health had to get better as a result of the label. Okay. Uh, we needed to approach it by putting the information that was there in the context of a daily diet. Okay, and so that was based on a daily diet. So I know calories are mentioned on the average the average number of calories. That was one of the yeah. first debates we had. Was okay. how many calories should it be right. based on? And it, and it's interesting because you know we looked at the population data and it turns out it's it's bimodal. You know usually you have an average and there's a peak. Well here you had two peaks, kind of uh, you know like a camel with two humps. What do you mean two peaks? So you had um, when I say a bimodal distribution, you have a one peak, which is what's the average that um, men eat, mm -hmm. but then you had another, which is the average calories that uh, women eat. Okay. And so it's sort of men and more active women, and mm -hmm. then you know uh, women less active men, and they have these sort of, this is that so the curve is the average that they um, consume. And the calorie- And the peak is sort of where the most people fall into that, um, you know, on the distribution. Okay, and at the time were you, was a calorie a calorie? Or was there already a debate about whether or not every calorie was different? No, I think people were thinking a calorie was a calorie, but the yeah. issue was when you took all of the data and just came up with the average, you came up with something around 2,300. Okay. Um, but when you looked at just the average for women, it mm. was closer to 2,000 uh, mm. calories. Right. Men, it was closer to 2,500 uh, right. calories. If you took the average... Um, you would be recommending as the sort of the basis of your diet that women on average consume maybe 300 calories more than they need, which probably wouldn't be good advice and something we didn't want to do. Okay. 
And so there actually was a, a, a fairly vibrant debate about how many calories we would base the label on. Andrew, what is had, it? It's 2,000, It's 2,000, yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and so by picking 2,000, uh, one, we wanted to make sure that we weren't right out, sort of saying, you know, encouraging women. I think part of the feeling was also that it wasn't that men were going to start starving themselves because they looked at the label, the label and said, right. gee, this, I, I'm eating too much. But it would be possible, more likely, that, you know, women would look at the label and say, well, I have plenty of room here to eat something like this in my uh, diet, which right. was probably bad advice. So <laughs> so we we focused on uh, 2,000 as a number, but it ended up being very controversial. It actually ended up going, it was something that at FDA we supported, the Department of Agriculture that was promoting meat mm. uh, products, which are higher in calories, wanted a higher uh, number. And it actually went all the way uh, to uh, the president, George Bush, to have to decide uh, which number it would be. Now, how did that conversation go? Uh, well, it was remarkable that it went to that uh, level with yeah. all of the things that a, a president has to decide. Yeah. Uh, but it did, and it ended up being decided after the election when he uh, lost. Uh, but there was a meeting in the Oval Office where the president, the vice president, the secretaries of agriculture and health, the press secretary, they were all there to, to look at that. And in a funny anecdote, David Kessler, who was the commissioner mm -hmm. of the Food and Drug Administration, uh, um, a, a few months before that summer, had taken his kids to a New Jersey beach, was sitting at a McDonald's, and he was looking at the placemat that they put on the tray, mm. and he saw a version of our new label, which had been in the news, and oh. McDonald's wanted to sort of get out ahead, and so they put this on their uh, placemat as consumer information, and they used 2,000 uh, calories on that uh, placemat. Okay. Uh, so we gave uh, Secretary uh, Lou Sullivan from Health and Human Services that oversees FDA, uh, we gave him a copy of that placemat, and at the proper time in that meeting, he took it out and showed it to the president and said, well, this is a good enough for a McDonald's. Um, and and um, I think it helped sway the room. They felt like if McDonald's thought this was a good enough 2,000 calories, that, that weighed on people. There are so many implications. It, it's funny because it wasn't <laughs> that, that story. Right? No, there wasn't. A, I'm sure there wasn't a policy discussion in McDonald's. What should the number uh, be? You know, right. it, it was. It was that some marketing person thought, well, this two thousand is a, a good round number. Well, I think they said, well, the FDA put this out there. They probably didn't even. They just saw it in our materials yeah. and they just repeated it. Wow. Without really. Can you even the eat a meal at McDonald's for two thousand calories? I mean, that's like your. No, you can. You, you can. can. And and I think actually to be uh, fair to a company like McDonald's, it's it's interesting, right? Because they're known for the, the fast food, that, which is a big problem. There's no question right. about that. Um, for the French fries, for the sugar-sweetened beverages, for a long time, for the meals for kids that were unhealthy. Yeah. But large corporations also tend to uh, ha be more responsive to public pressure and what's going out in the world. Okay. Um, so whether it's food safety or nutrition, I think often big companies... Um, you know, the people who lead those companies are, 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 are you know, humans, they're parents often, they kind of see these same issues. And, and, and sometimes they have uh, a lot of shareholders and, and others who are concerned. And yeah. so you know, I think companies like that have are caused a big part of the problem, but they're also in some ways more uh, responsive. Yeah, in terms of, well, right. I mean, first, sure, we see McDonald's has changed its menu significantly over the years to try to be responsive to and Americans it's, it's, desire. And it's, it's hard, right? I mean, yeah. for them, you know, if they decide to add apples to right. their, you know, all of a sudden they have to get, you know, you, they, it's massive demand. It, it's, they have to come up with a, a supply chain right. to meet all that that right. could take a year to, right. uh, or more to create. And so it's, it, it, it seems to the, you know, I think public gets frustrated and rightly because they've done a lot of uh, things that have harmed people as well. Yeah. But, but I think also 
um, they can be more responsive. So, okay. So and McDonald's also feeds lots of kids every day. And if you, if we fast forward in your career, you are also supporting Michelle Obama's work with kids and in fighting, I guess this growing obesity issue that had been growing kind of over the years. And you were probably watching that in the, in the different administrations that you were serving under it. What, how did, how did this become the thing that the first lady really championed and what was significant about the moves that she made to try to change the way that America looked at how kids were eating? It's a great point. And I think that the problems evolved over uh, time. Mm. And so I think uh, for a long time in my own training in nutrition and work in it, um, the, the focus was on hunger. Yep. The focus was on that there were millions of Americans uh, because of poverty, because of other problems, uh, didn't have enough uh, calories to eat. Uh, right. That problem sort of um, reached its peak in the 1960s in terms of awareness, but then for the decades that followed, it often drove uh, policy and mm -hmm. the programs that were created were often created with the focus of getting people enough to eat. And, and, and I think we're all familiar um, with uh, a public discussion about hunger in America. Right. But I think by the time, um, you know, even back then, there was an awareness that diet also affects uh, your health, not just in enough calories, uh, but it also uh, can impact your health. I, even back when I was uh, a training, you know, causes heart disease, causes uh, cancer. Right. Um, and so there was an awareness of that. Um, and, and there was a, an awareness within the administration as well. So well, like, when they came in, so Michelle Obama, I think when she became first lady, yeah. had young uh, children. Right. And, and it was something that she had already dealt with in her uh, life in, in, in going to the pediatrician, seeing her kids might be a little bit higher on the a weight curve and realizing that food plays a key role. And as a mom, mm. um, it was hard to do something about that. Right. Um, it was hard to get the right meal. Even someone with the privilege that she had and, and a busy schedule, the, the time constraints uh, made it difficult. So, and you're saying, so the hunger, the issue of hunger in America really kind of started to wane as the key issue in the 60s. Is that what you're saying? It kind of hit its peak and then... I think it hit, it hit a, a peak in awareness that yep. resulted in substantial policy change. You had okay. a, a president who held the White House Conference on Nutrition as a result. You right. had the Senate created a, a select committee on nutrition and they put in place, um, you know, there, there were the beginnings of what the food stamps or SNAP programs, school right. meals had, had begun, but those programs uh, grew exponentially as a result of that uh, time. Uh, they went from serving one or two million Americans just within a, a couple of years. By 1970, um, they were already serving more than 10 million uh, Americans. So there was great growth in those programs. Right. And then there was new programs like WIC and Food Labels we talked about before came out of that period of time. So why why did Michelle Obama go after school food? What How did that fit into kind of all of these other changes that were happening to, on the one hand, defeat hunger, and on the other hand, um, attack was obviously a food issue. You know, there were health issues kind of evolving because of the recommendations we were making to Americans to eat. And so how, how did she target, why did she target school food? Again, I think it begins with a personal experience mm -hmm. in her life and seeing this. And then once you have the position of a first lady and you have all the resources of government to help you understand the problem, explain what's going on and, and learn about it. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you just ask and all of a sudden the, the top experts in the nation are there and, and helping 
Um, I think she saw that this was not just a problem in her household, but it mm-hmm. was a, a nationwide problem. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, diet-related disease is now the nutrition crisis. It's not that hunger is is, is fully gone away. We still have uh, largely the poverty hasn't, mm-hmm. and and the food food insecurity um, hasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because of the success in the '60s in trying to address this, we now have a Department of Agriculture that spends a hundred billion with a B mm-hmm. every year feeding people, and one in four Americans get some food as a result of that in the course of a, a year. And so, as a result of that, there, there's enough calories out there. So okay, but I'm I'm sitting in multiple dinners over the course of a year where mm-hmm. myself and the entire audience are being told that we have a hunger issue, that there's a childhood hunger issue, that there's a food access um, issue that's that's driving hu- issues of hunger. Do we have a hunger problem in America still or do we have a malnutrition problem? Well, I would say we have a, a malnutrition problem. Mm-hmm. And I think the term hunger, it, it's, you know, I, I think as people often think about it, where, mm. where you have the image of a, a child who, um, you know, is, is the mal- bloated belly, belly and right? I mean, that bloated belly, those feeble. types of things come from calorie, right. protein, malnutrition, micronutrient, malnutrition. Mm-hmm. Those don't really exist in America uh, today. Okay. Uh, but the poverty hasn't been solved. The inequality hasn't been solved. Right. And so for, for millions of families, uh, getting enough food on their table is a struggle. Right. Um, they'll get it there, but they may uh, worry whether they will. They may actually skip a meal. And so it's interesting at the Department of Agriculture, they dropped the term hunger some years ago and replaced it with the term food insecurity. Okay. And, and, right. and then they measure it over a range from the, the, when they talk about when you read that there's so many food insecure and it's most general level, it just means people worry that they don't have enough to eat. And that's a real worry. It's not that they're just, yeah. it's just that they, their income is low, they may not have a job, um, so they're not sure where the food, but because of the programs that have put into place, mm-hmm. um, there will be calories eventually. No one's missing out to the point where they have these calorie-related disease. In the meantime, though, um, the largest of the USDA feeding programs, uh, once called Food Stamps, now SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, the word nutrition is now in its name, yeah. but the department has never really put that into the program uh, yet. So, okay, in America, is there enough nutritious food to feed every American nutritiously every every day, every week? I, I will say and yes. Like the, it sounds like matching is a problem. Sure, well, I'll say yes. And, and, and there are certain caveats that people often point out that you know the government recommends you consume up to nine servings of fresh fruits and vegetables every day. And right. people do the math and they say, well, we're not even producing that many fruits and right. vegetables. Right. But our system is more than capable of doing that. Okay. And if the demand was there, farmers would meet it. Right. So it's not that it, you know we don't have it, it's just that they're meeting what the demand is. Right. And, and, and the, so, so I'll say yes to the question. I think yeah. that there's no... You know, there went, you, you went over a reasonable amount of time, find that, gee, we just don't have enough healthy food. We could produce as much as there is a demand for. So right now, we are instead producing unhealthy food. We are producing too much unhealthy food. Right. And when did that start happening? It probably started happening in the 1950s mm-hmm. uh, when food companies started really the revolution in, in packaged uh, foods, mm-hmm. uh, combination of technology, also just changing um, uh, markets, um, 
even in fact, the um, uh, the other day I was at our Centers for Disease Control and I was uh, talking to someone who works for the Department of Defense at the Pentagon. Yeah. And here in Massachusetts, uh, you can go visit the Natick Labs, which is a, a military uh, base in uh, Natick, hmm. where they do the research to help with the meals for our soldiers. And so out of that came the ability to create packaged um, meals ready to eat, they're called MREs. Ah. Um, and they needed things that could sit in packages for a long time and maybe even years and, right. and not uh, spoil and be able to eat. And so a combination of, of, of those changes in technology and of applied to food, uh, there was this um, um, birth and explosion in, in, in packaged uh, food. Right. And um, as part of that, uh, those foods, uh, uh, you know, sugar, um, fat, uh, salt in those foods, uh, simple ways that, um, you know, appeal to taste when you don't have the uh, fresh ingredients or the more complex things you could do uh, gave birth to that uh, uh, revolution in our food. So you're, it's interesting that you mentioned the Department of Defense. So is this a true statement? It's something we heard multiple times as we started to do food work in the city that the Department of Defense um, initially... Um, that the school food program was created originally because the Department of Defense had trouble recruiting enough Americans because Americans were malnourished and hungry and were not then fit to fight. And that if we fast forward now, there are there is a Department of Defense program that sends fruits and vegetables into schools with the same worry, but now kids are generally too overweight or sick. And again, we have this problem of have, of being able to generate enough Americans who are fit to fight. That is absolutely true. It's actually a true. Yeah, statement. no, in the 1940s after World War II, the Department of Defense went to the Congress and, and exactly as you said, yeah. recognized that in World War II, they had trouble meeting their recruitment targets because people were undernourished, malnourished in that way. And so the school lunch program indeed was a created in response to that uh, request from the, the generals of that uh, day. Right. But you're also right, if you fast uh, forward today, there's a group called uh, Mission Readiness. It's 700 former admirals and uh, generals. And throughout the Obama administration and still uh, today, um, their mission is limited to the military's readiness. That's their only um, um, goal. That's right. their mission. That's the only thing they care about. Right. But the number one issue they've been pushing now for years is uh, a, a transformation of school meals to, uh, to make them healthier. And in fact, um, when Michelle Obama was pushing for what's that called the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which mm -hmm. is her signature legislation that changed the school meals, uh, she was working hard on it. A lot of advocacy groups were working hard. Uh, it was almost to the uh, finish line and getting it done, but um, the food companies, others who were opposing it were pushing back and it was kind of like the goal line, yeah. uh, stand what it would get done. And actually it was that group mission readiness and the admirals and uh, generals there who joined the, the fight in, in, in the later stages and helped us push it across and get it enacted. That's so interesting to really to protect America. Um, to protect America. Yeah. Hmm. It's amazing the power that the food industry has. It is amazing. And yeah. they have a lot of power in, in our government. Yeah. So if we think about the timelines that you're um, talking through, school food kind of followed that same set of timelines where school food was offered. A lot of it was made in schools. It was kind of whole real food. And as prepackaged manufactured food became more available, it was certainly easier to prepare and deliver to students. And so school food is kind of transformed into this thing where 
it's lowest common denominator in most school systems across America where, you know, we're, we are feeding most kids, mostly prepackaged manufactured food. It's full of preservatives and. Yeah, no, that's, that's a concern. And, and you're right to point that out. And I think that um, schools have so much that they're trying to, to worry about. I yeah. know in my own experience, when we uh, took our kids to uh, join a, a, you know, an elementary school, the a principal was taking us around. This was actually um, right as the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act had just passed and was put into law. Right. And and he, when we passed the cafeteria, um, it was a group of older parents, and he um, looked at us and he looked at the cafeteria and said, "Well, nothing's changed since you were here. School meals still are yeah. awful, right? It's still, it still is what it is. And how, like, and how can that be? Like that one, two, three times a day we're feeding kids, and especially when we're talking about the most vulnerable kids." Well, it, 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 it really shouldn't. I, I, I empathize with the, the principles that they have so much, yeah. but it's been our practice in our family every time we've started a new school with our kids. Uh, CDC has these maps that yeah. you can go and you can see, and it, it shows how the co- country, how overweight and obesity has overtaken yeah, the country. Yeah, I was looking at those again this morning. And and, and it's and it's startling, right? In, yeah. in 1980, there wasn't a, a single state in the country where uh, more than 15% were right. obese. And today, every state in the country is over 15, right? None yeah. were at. Oh, now yeah, significantly over, over 15, over, I think, Yeah, now us. you have some as many as 35, 40. Right. And as a nation, almost two-thirds of people are either overweight and obesity. And that, that's all happened uh, within, you know, 30, um, 40 uh, years. And, and and I think for... What is it for kids? For kids, it's less. It's it's closer to a, a quarter, but it's still yeah. quite high. Well, that's significant, though. Twenty five percent. Yeah, of kids. and it's gone up a lot as well. And yeah. so I think that you know the, the point in showing those to principals is to sort of say that you know, absolutely, reading is important. Um, you know, math, yeah. all the skills that you're having, all the issues that you have. But if you look at what's happened to Americans, how sick we are. Yeah. Um, the fact that almost half of Americans are either diabetic or pre-diabetic that for the first time as a nation and unique to the United States compared mm-hmm. to other developed nations, the last three years, um, our lifespans have been getting shorter. Yeah. It was always sort of assumed that, you know, each year people would be living longer. And and a big study just came out and, and, and showed that obesity, overweight is one of the major drivers along with the opioid epidemic, other things going on, but right. that it's this, this poor diet is that's making people uh, sick. Do, do people identify with that? You know, so if you if you are someone who is suffering from obesity or being overweight, are you identifying with that statement that your life may be shortened because of it? Because certainly, as we became more aware of things um, like cigarette smoking, and we tied it to lung cancer, and we tied that to death, you knew that if you were smoking a cigarette, it wasn't good for you. You there was a stronger likelihood that you're going to end up with lung cancer. Uh, I, I don't have we made has that correlation kind of seeped into you know, that, that's a good point in, about the psychology of, of risk and how people think about it. And yeah. so back to, you know, tobacco, what's interesting is though we've known for uh, uh, decades and generations the harm of uh, tobacco, uh, when you look at, and, and I had the privilege when I was at FDA to work on tobacco regulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, right. And in the Clinton administration, we, 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 we tried to regulate the tobacco industry and then in the Obama administration, Congress passed the law finally to do that. Yeah. But the, when you look at what, change to finally enable that to happen. You're right, people knew about the risk of smoking, but that's not 
it's not that they one day woke up, but we, we need to do something about it. Even though three quarters get hooked as children, so they want to quit tomorrow. So it's, it's unlike other things where the vast majority of smokers really want to quit. Right. But it wasn't until um, the public health activists generated interest around the issue of secondhand smoke. Oh, that was really the, the turning point. So it never really did reach the point where the people who were um, harming themselves, who huh. saw the risks themselves, even where uh, most wanted to quit, um, it, it, that's not what you know, uh, changed the debate. It was when people started saying, well, what about me? You're, right, <laughs> right? You, it, it, you don't get to be. Yeah, and, and it, so it, it's that way. And I think in the huh. same way with food is interesting. You know, another privilege I've had in both uh, 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 Clinton and, and Obama administrations was to lead a lot of the U.S. food safety right. work. Right, right. And uh, foods, our food has gotten so much safer. You know, actually the first nutrition crisis was way That's back in, in the 19, late 1800s, 1900. It was one of the 10 leading causes of death. And, and, and our food is just so much safer. Was what, like bacteria or? So, also chemicals. Chemical, oh. Um, there was a oh. chemical revolution. They were putting, you know, they, they wanted to make food look fresher and, right. and, and uh, smell good when it was rancid. And so they would they found that, well, we could put chemicals in food and it would have these effects. But because there was no testing or rules at the time, right. um, they would just put the chemicals in and wait to see what would happen. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, people would die. And it would be un not uncommon that hundreds of children would die from an outbreak of foodborne illness. Uh, just just tragic. And, and, and there weren't laws. And, and, and it actually was the first time the, the country, the, uh, President Teddy Roosevelt, uh, stepped forward, the Congress stepped forward. In 1906, they passed the food safety laws that still uh, um, are what the FDA. But what's interesting yeah. is you fast forward to today. Yeah. And the CDC says, if you look at the things that we know cause deaths, um, due to foodborne illness, there are about 1,400 uh, deaths a year. Okay. Um, too many. Um, when I ran our food safety agencies, you know, dedicated to get it down as close as we can uh, to zero. Mm -hmm. And it's one where I think the public is most energized in food and health is around these food safety issues. Yeah, I think so too. Well, you know why though? If you think like where policy changes happen, death is like happening Immediately. Immediately. Right? Yeah, because that 1,400 way too much. Yeah. And you know what? There are 1,400 deaths every day. Every day due to poor quality diets. And yet no one's jumping up. You know, there, there no. are people working on it and there are people who do care about it, um, uh, people who are seeking policy. But for the public overall, what you're saying, they're, they're not yeah. you know, demanding that, well, this needs to uh, change. And though Michelle Obama was able to make that a change, there was a considerable amount of pushback to this day on it. Because it uh, changes the markets, right? Because then food the food industry has to significantly adjust. It, it's right. If it's going to meet kind of new demands that say, oh, you know what, actually we're gonna eat healthy, fresh, it, It's a combination and, and, it's a com it, it, and it costs more, but but again, to be you know fair to companies, and they do deserve We actually a showed it does not cost more. Um, well, then that's it, it, you know, it, you're right, and, yeah. and it's but it, it can, and, it can. And, and if depending on what the company is and the yeah. line of business they're doing, it significantly would change manufactured food companies' business models if they were to get into the whole real. Yeah, and if, fresh so if food you're looking business. at individual segments and how that you know where their profit comes from, yeah. you know some segments would have to change or disappear. Other segments would uh, grow a, a great deal. Let's talk about for a second this whole notion that, so now- But I wanted to make one more point. Oh yeah, go ahead, so, go ahead. But, but again, in the companies, definitely they share the blame, yep. but they're also, and, and you know this, right? It's, I mean, companies, what are they doing? They're trying to meet the demands of the consumers. So right. I, I don't want to say that the companies are 
I think your listeners shouldn't have the feeling that, gee, this totally. is all, right. This isn't no, company. It's not big, bad business yeah, trying to kill us. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's, 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 it's what you were identifying before that consumers, these are the products that um, the unhealthy products that we see all the time are the ones that consumers are largely uh, demanding. And then you have to ask why I think in the case of a lot of low income people, it's because it's the, you know, um, it's the food that um, saves the most time, um, easiest to put in front of their children um, in, in a very you know difficult, demanding uh, a day, and and so it's not that they're looking for. I think everyone w- would love to serve their kid healthier food. It's just that, given their budget, given the amount of time, um, you know, how can they get the right amount of calories? Yeah, but I mean, it's this weird cyclical thing, right? Because when did wasn't it the case that when we shifted dietary recommendations for Americans to suggest that we should be eating low fat diets? That we also that that government went to the food industry and said you need to produce more of these low fat items because we need Americans to be eating this way and so it was a little bit government trying to shift the curve on heart disease and other uh, what they thought were food related issues and 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 at the same time market to Americans to say hey if you eat low fat you will be healthier and I think also they said you will you won't you'll lose weight right. Um, well, th- so you've, you've identified a real central um, issue here that, that people need to understand, and, and it's difficult for those of us in nutrition to, uh, to talk about, which is the, um, the gaps in our understanding of uh, nutrition. Yeah. And um, so it would have been um, wonderful and better if we sort of knew what the answers were. And, but, you know, it's interesting, there's, there's not a lot of investment in the science and nutrition. No. And, and it's, it's hard to study, right? Right, it's really hard to study. Yeah. Um, if you wanted to use the best scientific methods, you would put people into a you know a, a sort of a, a blinded group of cases and controls, right. and you can't even do that because people know what they eat. Right. And, and so um, you know it's not like you can give them a pill and one's real, one's right. fake. I mean, people see what they eat and they record it. It's just almost impossible to do a study where you you know people recall what they ate in an unbiased totally. way. Totally. Right. Um, right. And so they you know they think about it, and even if they recorded exactly accurately, they probably changed what they ate because they knew they were in this study and they're gonna to have to write it down. So they're Absolutely. more mindful of it. And, and then really to do the study to see, you know, what would be, with the questions we have, what would be the impact of this diet over mm. that diet over a lifetime? You'd really have to feed it to people over a lifetime and right. see. Right. And now had we done that, if we, you know, started doing that, hundred years ago, we would have answers to these questions. But yeah. everyone's sort of like, well, it would be so far in the future. So we really haven't done that. And, and a remarkable thing, you know, we have, um, there's some areas we've made great progress in healthcare. We have the National Institutes of Health, which is the world standard in, in terms of uh, nutri- you know, science and health. Right. And there's, an, there's a cancer institute, there's a heart institute, there's a diabetes institute all around these diseases. And the progress we make are largely uh, due to those. Yeah. Um, what are those diseases? Everyone, though, underlying talks about food. They do, but, but those three institutes I mentioned, cancer, heart disease, yeah. Um, diabetes, uh, what's in common in all those diseases? Diet, nutrition, yeah. food's the cause of it. There is no nutrition institute at NIH. There is no one doing hmm. um, um, you know, dedicated science around uh, nutrition oh, as a, a country. And so as you know, it's not that we're not trying, people are trying, but then that goes back to your point. So it's absolutely correct that um, you know, we started off with the advice a long time ago, which is really the advice uh, 
uh, today, eat more fruits and vegetables. But our nature was one of its, you know, we wanted to sort of dig down into it and kind of understand, well, what is it about fruits and vegetables? Right. Or what is it about these things? And right. could we be reduce it to some kind of pill? That can we make it taste like a Cheeto? Make it easier to would, do. Yeah. yeah, no, whatever it is, do we right. understand it that we can engineer it in that way? Right, and right. we haven't been that good at that. And, and often mistaken when we do that. And, and one of the things you mentioned before was at one point, um, we believe that the uh, key to preventing heart disease and cancer was a low fat uh, diet. Right. Um, that turned out to be um, incorrect. Um, it's, it's low saturated fat, it wasn't all fat, it was there's good and bad fats, and we didn't understand that well enough when we started. Uh, yeah, that. I mean, we're learning. And then you mentioned companies, well, when the government put out recommendations that people should eat low fat, which was driven because we had institutes of heart disease and cancer, right. not nutrition, the heart disease and cancer, their focus was on those diseases, and they could see how uh, diets high in fat from some of their studies seem to be harmful. Right. So they jumped to the conclusion that it's fat, um, you know, if there'd been a nutritionist, maybe they would have understood that, well, this is, you know, they're all, the, you push down one thing, something else goes up, you know, you, don't, yeah. you just don't know. And so- Sugar, when the, you when mean? The, when the, exactly. <laughs> so when the government came up with a label, which I'm, um, you know, proud to have helped uh, design, yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I did the graphic design and, and the insight that I had is we could design the label that would focus not just consumers, but companies on a particular issue that would be the most important yeah. issue. And the experts told us it was fat. And so that's why when we designed it, we put total fat first, right. which is still there. And if you look at an older label, it said percent calories from fat. Yeah. These are all sort of nudges to not only get consumers, but to get companies to drop the fat. And they did. Yeah. Um, but what wasn't thought through was, well, what's the consequence of doing that? I mean, they still have to sell the food. And so um, they replaced that fat tragically with uh, added sugars, uh, processed grains, um, sodium um, that ended up causing at least, if not more, uh, harm than the, the fat did in the first place. Yeah. I mean, the policy certainly got me to eat more Twizzlers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it was at they FDA, were low fat. It, was, it was snack wells. People literally Sorry. had them on their desk and felt like they could eat a whole package yeah. because it was zero fat. And that's just not true. Yeah. Now, but, but let's so let's think about that because now the thing that we have learned from, from this whole kind of increased obesity epidemic, which is just, it is an epidemic, right? Absolutely. Like, pandemic. Pan, pandemic. And so the one thing we that we have deciphered though, I don't know if this has been scientifically proven, although I hear it all the time, is that um, we probably need more good fats in our in our um, diet, in our daily diet, and we d- definitely need less sugar. We definitely like, need. We don't actually need even any sugar. Added sugar, Add, I mean, like, that, right? Yeah, processed sugar, right? So adding sugar, but it's probably more. It's probably also processed grains. I think one of the um, big stories that hasn't really been told yet that's just emerging mm. is that as the the, the United States, I think, in, in a positive way, was not only trying to produce enough food for its own citizens, but right. also uh, there was a time where people would warn that a billion people were going to die worldwide right. because of hunger. Right. And so the United States looked to create the cheapest, plentiful source of calories it right. could. And, and, and we had these grain crops, uh, wheat, corn, um, that you know helped drive that um, yep. um, revolution in, in, in food that prevented those uh, deaths. Uh, provided enough uh, calories, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but as companies, you know, made them into food and and processed them, uh, they changed them in fundamental ways that the final product, even for most 
of these other grain products that are not added sugars um, have many of the same effects. Right, as sugar does in as your system. Sugar. So the process, you know, is every bit is probably as much as added sugar is a risk to health. Yeah. Um, the the refined or processed grains are as uh, well. So is there is there a way to knowing we know so much more about a calorie at this point, and we and we now know that a calorie is not a calorie is not a calorie, and right. so we can't judge it on that. Even though I think. The, I don't think we've gotten around yet to the USDA. It, it still requires X number of calories, but doesn't specify which foods need to deliver those calories. In the meal standards for yeah, schools. Yeah, in, in the meal standards for schools. But uh, shouldn't we also be rethinking how many calories one needs? Because it is it actually 2,000 calories? If you're eating really densely nutritious calories, it could be less. Well, it could be more. I think, and, and the label points out that you're, you know that's an average, and yeah. and and, and it, you know I think one of the things that was nice to be able to pick two thousand was it was a big enough. You know when we were talking about like twenty, it, you know every other number you put in from two thousand to twenty two, whatever it, it sort of conveys to people a level of a specificity yes. that probably overstates it. So what's nice about two thousand you mentioned before a big round number. I mean it is sort of that's probably the level of of confidence that goes with it. But more importantly, I think is that people do need to. Um, you know, come up with a diet that's right for them. For them, right. Um, so I, I don't think the, the calorie number, you know, and, and as I said, in some ways, the nutrition advice that we all got from our parents and grandparents, you know, a, a diet pattern that's based around right. uh, plants, that's fruits, vegetables, uh, uh, which true whole grains, which I'll call intact whole grains, which I'm making that point because most of the food that we pick up in the grocery store that's packaged that says, you know, 100% whole wheat in it, is still highly processed grain. So, and how much time do you do you feel like doctors today know more about this than doctors did even fifteen years ago? You've identified another big problem. They don't. Yeah. And um, you know the doctors. I mean, they're not trained about nutrition right. in, in in schools. It's not on the exams they have to pass when they um, become uh, physicians. Um, you know, the argument is that when you go to your doctor, they, you know, there again, you might present with things that could kill you in the next 10 minutes or the next day. Right. And, and they want to be able to stop those first and need to learn most about uh, those. So, yeah. I mean, we have, there's a whole profession of, of nutritionists and dietitians who can help uh, uh, doctors. Um, but I think, you know, a key part about this, I want to make clear, you know, want to make sure we, we, we touch on today yeah. is a, a broad understanding um, that it's the environment, um, it's the food, really a toxic food environment. Mm. Um, we want to avoid, I think, and part of the problem is people thinking that this is a failing of me and that if I just had a little totally. bit more willpower, right. if I had a little bit more knowledge, um, I would be able to navigate the current food environment and be healthy. Well, we haven't even talked about how addictive sugar is and how addictive processed foods are. I mean, they're addictive in the same, I just use the same analogy, but in the same way, the cigarettes created addictive, you know, were, helped they, they, promote addictive behavior. They Foods trigger are the manufactured same, to yeah, do no, the they same They are, thing. and they trigger, the, and the companies know it, right. and they trigger the same brain We never talk about someone suffering from food illnesses, right? Unless they're foodborne, you know, illnesses. But, you know, we don't talk about someone suffering from obesity the way we talk about someone suffering from lung cancer. And so there's, the, like, it's not yet kind of baked into the way we think about food or talk about food, that it's connected to our health in an important enough way. For enough people. And, and yeah. again, it, so, you know, some of it is understanding it for policy. If, 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 
if to get policies to change the food environment right um, would require the public support on that and and this is this line between what people are worried you know for themselves versus understanding this is a, a broader problem and we talk about addiction um, it's not only in the sugar that triggers the the, the, the brain yeah. um, but you you watch some of the ads and they probably trigger the same areas right. in the brain that cause pleasure you know every food company has this way of sort of making you feel that um, well, they must have been Coca-Cola on the Mayflower because, totally. right? I mean, it goes all the way back. Yeah. These are traditional. They, they, you know, it's 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 not an accident. Then when you see, particularly in this season, you see all these processed food companies somehow showing images of tradition. Yeah. Um, the subtle message is that these are the foods that have made us comfortable and happy forever, for, and, and for it's years. just not true, right? These are co- products that they introduced. Um, they're sort of, you know, it, 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 they're they're you know basically. Um, you know, jumping into the photo and, and, and you know, photobombing themselves in and sort of saying- Into the you know, memory. Yeah, that yeah. this is something we've always been here. We've always been part of that. And I think that's a, a big part of it as well. So for, you know, again, we're children, you know, how does someone become an eater? Yes. You know, I think when we, our success in tobacco was when we really approached it to say, you know, how did someone become a smoker? And we found out that it was it was a childhood disease, you mm. know, that the companies were addicting uh, people before they knew uh, better. Right. And, and in fact, ultimately found in their own documents that they referred to children as replacement uh, smokers was the actual term oh, that yeah. they used. And, and I think with food companies, um, again, trying to get uh, a market share, both in the design of the products and the advertising they do, um, they've created an environment where people seem to feel like the unhealthy food is what uh, um, gives them pleasure, comfort. It, it does in some superficial ways. Right. Um, but there's a prevailing view that somehow a healthier diet is is a sacrifice that you have to make. Yes, and and right. it's absolutely not. I mean, you've all demonstrating here in the Boston schools uh, with the cafes and such yeah. and the scratch cooking yeah. that, um, you know, people, um, I mean, we still if, have to meet consumer demand. We still have to make yeah. sure it's delicious. And, and, and the most kids, delicious meal right. is going to be that scratch cooked Absolutely. Uh, uh, meal. And, and they and, love it. It looks so gorgeous and uh, it tastes delicious. Yeah. And it, and it you know, it, 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 it lights up so many more areas of the brain as opposed to the, the simple right. path where you, you know, use the advertising, you use the sugar, you use uh, salt and fat that are, are sort of shortcuts to pleasure and, and um, um, are cheaper, easier to do, but ultimately cause a great deal of harm. So let's talk about that a little bit, though, because um, for sure, you know, here we think about this as a as an intervention that America could use, you know, so that many kids across America are fed via school one, two, or three times a day, you know, not not during the summer, but otherwise. Fifty and, million children, right? Fifty million tr- children, and so with the majority of them eating school food, and so that's a that's a potentially massive health intervention. Alongside of that, we were talking about poverty and um, access being another issue. And so what what do you see as being very promising um, in, in the pro- programs like SNAP and WIC to help solve the food access program for families, for adults, um, obviously for kids, in, both in the summer and before and after school? How are you, are you excited about what you're seeing happen in those programs? And do, can you think, talk to us about what should be happening additionally? I am. And, and earlier we talked about um, Michelle Obama coming in sort of 
yeah. presenting the problem in her personal life and looking for a, a broader policy solution. Yeah. And, and in a sense, you can go back and she said, we're going to end uh, childhood obesity in a generation. Yeah. And um, when, when she started talking about that, you know, one of the things, you know, is that even possible in the right. same way that when, uh, you know, uh, 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 Jack Kennedy said, we're going to send a man to the moon in a decade. Right. Um, you know, or the, I mean, the, the, the physics were there and we did it. Right. And, and, and so as, as someone who was charged when she would talked about that, of having to come up with the policies, um, you know, some said, well, gee, this isn't, you know, I mean, we have this problem, we need to do it, but you can't possibly, right, in a generation, mm. how are you going to do that? Mm. And sitting at USDA, um, you know, I had the insight that we could do this in a generation. Really? And the reason is because the numbers I cited uh, before, which I think most people uh, don't appreciate, you know, how... Um, you know, people think of the Department of Agriculture. Of course, they rightly think of uh, farmers and, and and support. I mean, you know, um, um, the USDA is obviously a, a big part of its mission is about that, um, but about farmers and, right. and and they're you know so important to the, uh, the food we eat. Um, but when you when you step back and look at its overall budget, it's about a hundred and and forty fifty billion a year. And as mm. I mentioned earlier, a hundred billion of that. Uh, so close to um, 70% or more of its budget is going to f these nutrition assistance programs um, that started off years ago to provide calories, but really have been slowly, except for uh, food stamps and SNAP, have been recast. So school meals ultimately was a program that Michelle Obama changed yeah. to make nutrition, um, um, healthier diets, the focus of the program, not just getting kids calories. Right. And um, other programs, WIC, Women, Infant, Children, which is targeted. But but the, but what I knew from my work already at USDA in those meetings is, you know, 100 billion is just a big number. What I mean, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, it turns out that in America, through these programs, uh, you know, another number I said, one in four Americans are touched by USDA's feeding programs in a year. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you realize that, like, um, you know, that 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 the whole crisis in nutrition, in a way, is is a child. Um, pediatric problem right. and that yeah. people get their, become an eater. They learn to eat a certain way as a child and, and, and increasingly are uh, starting down the path to uh, a poor quality diets and diet disease as a child. Um, then you step back and say, well, how would you change that? Mm. Well, it turns out that WIC, the Women, Infant, Children, which is a, a national program USDA runs to get uh, pregnant women and infants and uh, uh, better nutrition, um, that program has been shown to work to, mm. to prevent diabetes. 52% of the infants in the United States are on that program. No. 52%. So we could reach half of the infants in the United States and their moms through this program that was is, is funded, it's there, and, and we can change it. And it's a matter of just keep continuing to improve uh, the standards. Wow. Another USDA program, Child and Adult Care Feeding, uh, um, helps out with child care. And a third of the children in child care in this country are in one of those programs where those standards could make a difference as uh, well. And then the program that you're most familiar with, the school meals program, um, you know, about uh, $14 billion, uh, 50 million kids, about 30 million are getting free or reduced meals. Right. Um, they're covered by those standards. Right. And what's remarkable is that USDA put out a study earlier this year mm -hmm. uh, to track the impact that that program is having. And particularly, to, it looked at the impact Michelle Obama's law had. Right. And so it had the data from before the law went into effect, and we could see the government has a measure called the Healthy Eating Index where they score uh, the quality of a, a diet. And school meals were scored at 58%, so a failing uh, grade, and, and actually pretty close to the grade that the average American um, gets for their diet. But 
this program went into effect and then they measured three years later and so what's the average uh, trace score now? It had gone up to 81. No. A, a B, a 40% increase. That's extraordinary. And as I started to say before, USDA also, you know, the WIC program, CDC just brought something showing that, you know, there, we, there's been a reduction yeah. in overweight and obesity in younger children yeah. due to the WIC program. Right. So it turns out that USDA actually has, uh, we all pay for in that $100 billion, uh, the feeding programs. It's not like when I worked at FDA or in health and human services where you basically try to just hector people, educate them, somehow get them to, to eat differently. The, yeah. the remarkable thing about USDA is it just puts the food on people's plates. This is interesting though. So so the twenty twenty in twenty twenty the new US dietary recommendations will come out from the USDA, right? They will. So are we up for some significant changes then? It sounds like we're learning a lot. About well, hopefully they'll continue to move in a positive direction. Yeah. Um, there's always, you hold your breath a little with this administration. The, the people they appointed have more industry ties than some previous panels, but there are a yeah. lot of good people on there as well. So we'll have to see what they do yeah. and that will have an impact. But I think ultimately, hopefully that doesn't change that much from time because the science you know, continues to move Steadily and well, and, they're aware of the data, though, right? That eighty yeah. percent of Americans are. And I think obese food companies overweight. aren't. Again, I don't think it's not a conspiracy where they want you to eat right. worse. So I, I think keeping things on a on, on the track that they are. But I yeah. think the, um, the more important thing is just that the USDA has these programs. They have these levers yeah. that work. Will they use them? And I think in the Obama administration, um, because of uh, Michelle Obama's leadership. Um, we made maximum use of those uh, levers. Yeah. Um, you know, this administration is simply not their priority. Mm. Um, um, you know, they're, they're not focused on agriculture. They're not focused on these programs. Um, they've weakened the rules even uh, some in an unnecessary way in response to, right. uh, to lobbyists. Right. And, and so we're missing, you know, we're losing important time. Um, you know, these are things where, as I noted before, people are living shorter, uh, less healthy uh, lives. Um, we've worked, I've worked in a partnership with John Hancock Life Insurance, a great company here in uh, town, yeah. um, who came to us because in their own data, they just saw that as a life insurance company, you know, for 200 years, they've been in the business of people living longer, healthier lives, and they assumed people would continue to do that. Yeah. And it, they saw it in their own data. People were living shorter, less healthy lives. It's and, impacting their business. And it's impacting their, their business. Their business model <laughs> depends but, on people living a long time. Yeah, and then they yeah. had the insight, which you know they regret not having sooner. I mean, if we're in the business of people living longer, healthier lives, what yeah. are we doing to help them do that? We yeah. should be doing that. And How so do you incentivize it. They created a program, Vitality. You know, they start off with things like tobacco use, exercise, but when they went into their own data, two to one, it was poor diets in their population that were. Uh, leading to the shorter How did they lesson. know? They just they just surveyed people and well, they have data. The they, they collect a lot of data, so they yeah. know they, they have your data. They you know they uh, probably if anyone has had the experience of getting life insurance, it's one of the more in, in intrusive is, types of things intense, in terms yeah. of you have to go for a physical exam. They yeah. collect all sorts of data on you. Yeah. They really want to know you know because um, they're placing a bet yeah. on on how you're going to how your health is going to be. So uh, being able to mine that data, they've concluded that it's it's poor quality diets. And so uh, they're trying to work to help incentivize people. And they've come up with uh, tools we've helped them develop where you can have an app, you can do things to um, uh, even uh, uh, for people, if you shop at a, a Walmart and you choose uh, a healthier food, you get a 25% discount on the food. So they're taking some key uh, steps in the right direction. Mm. But but ultimately, if we're going to solve this problem, we need to change 
the food environment. And that's what's exciting about the program uh, that you're doing here in, in Boston, where in schools, uh, you've literally uh, done that. You've, you've changed the food environment for these kids. So, um, you know, they show up to school the way they used to show up. And all of a sudden, they have a meal that uh, first and foremost tastes uh, better, right? right. I, I hope you would... Uh, you know, from what oh, you told delicious. me, right? Yeah. It's, that's the first thing that people would notice, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the great thing about that is that's really the how, how a nutritious, healthy food is. It tastes uh, great. Right. And anyone who feels like, gee, to eat healthier, I need to make sacrifices, is just not being exposed to the, to the really right good, well cooked food. food. It, does, it does beg a question, though, because when we're talking about SNAP, uh, families who are on SNAP, often they also are encumbered by not having enough time especially not enough time to cook healthy meals every day. And so right now, SNAP doesn't allow you to purchase pre-cooked meals. That's correct. correct. So it still doesn't. But wouldn't, wouldn't that be kind of a next step in the right direction to allow families to use SNAP to buy healthful meals that are already prepared? Because there's a lot of conversation about folks using SNAP to buy unhealthy food. And yet we don't provide healthy food them to access as readily. So do you think that that'll ever happen, that that we could, there could potentially be a shift in, in how those dollars are used? I think there, I think it will happen. I think yeah. there's an opportunity and there's an opportunity in, in the program that you're doing potentially to, yeah. to do that. So I think when SNAP was created as food stamps, mm-hmm. um, the, the model then um, was that each family that they're providing assistance to probably had a full-time person preparing meals. Right. Uh, not a chef they're bringing in, but someone in the family. Someone was there. Was, was, that was, and so the, the package of food that they uh, came up with that the money allowed you to buy has built, baked into it an assumption that there's a full-time food preparer. Yeah. And that person's time is, is not really being accounted for. And so study after study has pointed that out and said that the, the current SNAP benefit has to change mm. uh, to account for that because mm. we're actually not providing people the resources. And, the, and as a result, the resources we're providing them um, matched with what's in the food shelves uh, leads people to buy the um, packaged, less healthy uh, food. Right. Not, not, not so much that it costs more necessarily. Some of these are cheaper, but yeah. you know, actually one of the other things we did in USDA was we saw that you know, produce in season, fruits and vegetables in season are mm. actually the cheapest uh, food. Uh, there's a totally. myth, there's a myth that you know somehow fruits and vegetables are more expensive. It was because when USDA first it was a USDA study, yeah. and it was a study based on per calorie. Right. Well, fruits and vegetables have almost no calories. So when you're talking about you know cost per calorie, well, yes, you know, eat all you know what could be more expensive than lettuce, right? Right. right. Um, on a calorie basis, but when you change that study, which we asked them to do, and they did on a volume basis, yeah. which is how people eat and fill up their stomach, yeah. um, um, they found out that fruits and vegetables in season are the cheapest uh, food. That was one of the biggest findings that we had. We, were, we had a chef walking around with us, and um, he pointed out to us that the reason the prepackaged processed, that, that the prepackaged processed, it was in this case turkey, was would be more expensive than if we just brought in meat or chicken or roast beef or whatever and prepared it on site. Mm-hmm. And he was like, think about all the stuff that went into that. There were, you had to pay people's salaries. You're paying for all of these additives and preservatives. You're paying for transportation as opposed to just having it shipped directly here and cooked. And so it makes sense actually that manufactured food is in fact 
more expensive, especially when you're delivering it. Yeah, no, in that study, when it was on a per calorie basis, yeah. McDonald's was seen as one of the best values yeah. out there, right? For a, you know, totally. But right. when they redid it on a volume basis, it was, it was one of the most expensive um, meals you could get. So, really? Yeah. So I, it's it's an important point to understand what people are really eating for. And so today, as I said, you know, we still need calories, but there's not a shortage of calories anymore, and people are going to get enough uh, calories. Yeah. And uh, because we set policy, we're spending $100 billion to assure that happens. And if you're gonna give people um, so, so little money to prepare a meal, right. um, it, it, it costs a lot more time. If you're gonna use the, right. you know, buy the dried beans and have to soak them, whatever it is, to get the lowest price, right. that takes a lot of time. If you could give people access, save them that time by giving them access to the meals you're preparing. Right. Um, that's something that we should study. And I think USDA, having worked there and know the, the people who run the program each day uh, would be open to that type of uh, study, a kind of pilot um, where they could take us the SNAP uh, recipients who have kids in the school yeah. and, and try, you've, you, you have the infrastructure there, you've prepared the meals. Yeah. What if after the school day, you made those meals available to those uh, families and parents? It's brilliant, could be what's up next. All right, Jerry, I wanna thank you so much for joining us today. It's always so interesting to talk with you and um, hopefully we'll talk more again soon. Great, well, Joe, thank you for today and really thank you for the outstanding uh, work you're supporting here in uh, Boston Schools. Thank you, thanks for helping us. Thank you for joining my conversation with Jerry Mand, professor at the Tufts Friedman School. I could literally talk with him all day about how nutrition, education, and research and its implications on policy and public health have evolved over time. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.